Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance novel podcast that would never employ a professional police force, lest we accidentally appear French. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack Restorative Romance. I'm Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance Substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector and book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. The Bow Street Runners, like Newgate Prison, are one of those setting markers that tells historical romance readers, oh, we're in a historical romance in London, probably in the pre-Victorian period. A few different authors have written whole series centered on runners as heroes. Lisa Kleypas, Kate Bateman, Gillian Eaton, and they pop up in quite a few different standalone books as well. But like how we investigated in our Newgate episode, I was primarily interested in the why and the how of Bow Street becoming a part of the historical romance canon of setting markers. The proto-police force existed for a little less than a century, initially differed greatly in their mission than police forces today, and would be nearly obsolete by the time Queen Victoria was crowned. Founded by Henry Fielding, perhaps best known for his work as a novelist, the Bow Street Runners were England's first professional police force. Up until their founding, apprehension and prosecution of a thief was thought of as a private or community matter. Bow Street was partially subsidized by the state, with an annual budget of £600, supplemented with rewards from private individuals who could afford it. Fielding was inspired by a fascination with professional thief-takers, men who made their careers by offering to go get a thief for a portion of recovered goods. These men were generally reviled as a necessary evil since their proximity to criminality and corruption made them suspect. The runners were supposed to take the task of thief-takers and make it professional, noble, and sanctioned. The Bow Street Runners really became their legacy under the control of John Fielding, Henry's blind half-brother who took over after Henry passed. John Fielding had a vision for policing that lays some of the groundwork for policing today. John, as Henry's secretary, established methods for documentation for stolen goods and known associations that effectively created an institutional memory for Bow Street. Like so many of the markers of Georgian and Regency settings, Bow Street runners are a policing force on the cusp of modernity and exist in between things, in between the old model of private apprehension and the new one of a professional police force, in between roguish criminality and professional policing. Things on the cusp often make for fruitful explorations of fiction, and we'll discuss some successes of authors who use the runners as subjects and some failures. So, Beth and Chels, what do you already know about the Bow Street Runners, either from the romance novels you've read or researched for this episode, and what outstanding questions do you have, and how we can talk about how we're going to address them today? <laughs> I feel like normally they're not used very well. We've kind of been, like, chatting uh, throughout the week about the Bow Street Runners, and it's just, like, incidentally, someone will be a Bow Street Runner, plus being an Earl, plus doing something else, which we... <laughs> have talked about how silly that is. I don't know if I'd read very many Bow Street books before this, or I just like didn't notice it because it wasn't like a strong enough component. But yeah, I think that <laughs> that's been my experience so far. I did re- like the Lisa Kleypas books we read for this, and I could tell she did like the most research. Yeah, so I knew, um, I guess Lisa Kleypas's Lady Sophia's Lover was probably one of my favorite Kleypas's. And so that one actually has a lot of detail about the Bow Street Runners and like Bow Street itself. So I kind of had an idea of that, but I think like seeing them kind of weaved in and out by other historical romance authors, I kind of never really thought deeply about what, what exactly are they doing and who 
how did they come into being? Like, uh, and, and then I think even too, like listening to you talk about like thief takers at the beginning, I was thinking about that. It's like we talked about the King's Brat uh, for the Newgate episode and the way that she gets apprehended and taken to Newgate isn't from a thief taker. It's from the guy that she was trying to steal, just like dragging her uh, <laughs> along, which I, from what I understand, that was like before thief takers. Uh, it's so- or yeah, if you had the power, if you had like the brawn, and like gumption to do it yourself you didn't have to hire a thief taker like literally you just grab someone and they were like they were trying to steal from me and you take them okay (laughs) so like if you're a thief but if you're very fast like you're probably okay until thief takers come into the picture right yes yes Um, and so i had a question about thief takers because they still exist at the same time as bow street runners right i think that's something to keep in mind as like throughout the whole history of bow street runners and policing is that like nothing moves that quickly like even when the met police get founded in i think 1829 is the cutoff year the bow street runners exist for like 10 more years after that like they just because they have this other professional police force doesn't mean that the runners stop existing Things just move slower, I think. There's not, and also there's not like a, the way that like common law works in England, um, because there's not, it's like not statutory at this point, really. <laughs> Things don't like have like a start date of like, this is the law now for right. everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not coming down from on high. And even when it does, someone has to be aware of that law. Like that's a big thing with the Bow Street Runners is that they have to study the law for who they're grabbing because thief takers don't do that. And like, this is one of the things that's going to make them more professional is like they're gonna read the law (laughs) and figure out who they need to be apprehending so yeah i think things moving slower like less communication between people like you might not know that bow street's a thing in the first few decades of bow street if you live in a different part of london or you Mm. live in a different part of england so it's just not yeah nothing happens like all at once in this in any of the history that we're talking about so there's lots of overlap I don't know how many questions you want us to do here because i assume you'll probably answer the questions we might have so I think the first thing we can talk about is generally like what happened in England and London before the Bow Street Runners exist. So even before we dive into like concrete history of the runners, I think we can establish what England's relationship was to policing at the time of the founding. As an abolitionist, I always think this is a useful exercise to think about models of policing other than what we have now, because I think it's really easy to think the system we have is a foregone reality and things have always been like this or always been moving toward what we have now. And in the history of English policing, there are a few like watershed moments when things changed. So importantly, prosecution in England has historically been a private matter. And the concept of public prosecution begins to emerge at the time we're talking about. But unlike in the United States, private prosecution is still or was by and large the standard and is still an option in England, as far as I understand it. Like that you don't have the state does not have to prosecute. You could bring prosecutions on your own. And I think that's until like the 60s, private prosecution is still like the mode, uh, at least as far as like the litigation goes. But at the time that we're talking about, prosecution doesn't just mean the litigation of the crime. It means the investigation and apprehension of the offender as well. This is frequently left to private citizens in England. And I think this is the biggest like mind shift to think about is like, you're always like, who's paying these people? Who's funding this? And it's like, well, it's a community matter. It's not the state. And this is a point of pride for England that they, they view it as community over the state um and i think again with like the enlightenment you can see the sort of mistrust of the state mistrust of the king that we are doing this in like community-based policing it's like one system of policing was hue and cry which is going to be important for the bow street runners that phrase later which is basically a system of yelling 
you witness a crime and you as a citizen have a duty to make a lot of noise and pursue the criminal from jurisdiction to jurisdiction until the offender is taken to a sheriff. What? This is sort of how it worked. (laughs) (laughs) From like the 1200s when like people start living in villages (laughs) to the 1600s. There are like watchmen who sort of take on this duty and these are notably not professionals. This is a duty that you have as like a citizen of a jurisdiction, a citizen of a parish. They're primarily concerned with night watches. There's a lot of anxiety about night at common law. Um, like a great example of this is the common law definition of burglary, which like any law student would know is like you think of burglary as like stealing something from a place with like a vi- threat of violence. But at the common law, it has to happen at night. So when you're in criminal law, you're like, this blows my mind. That so like the during elements- the day, you, you're, it's like free game. It's something, I think it's, they, I don't remember what they call it, but it's only burglary if it's from a dwelling at night. That's and some jurisdictions, I think That's burglary really good to know. is still limited to a dwelling. So there's all this anxiety about nighttime and like things are worse if you do them at night. So these night watches happen and then the profession sort of changes when nightlife becomes a thing with artificial lighting. So it's like there's Mm -hmm. less anxiety about this when they can sort of have reliable candles that are not going to burn everything down. Because originally, like during like the 1200s, the 1600s, it was basically like if you were out after dark and you didn't have a good reason to be out, like the watchman would apprehend you and be like, what are you doing? You're probably going to burgle or something. I think a great example of like sort of this watchman or constable is Dogberry in Much Ado About Nothing. We can sort of see Shakespeare like lampooning him as lazy, willing to sleep on the job. And he's an idiot who misapplies the law. That's like what his comic role in the play is, that he's constantly sort of citing the law incorrectly. And another important job is like watching out for fires. So constables and watchmen initially dealt with the beginning of the Great Fire from 1666, that they were the ones who were like on the scene to the detriment of London, possibly. These people <laughs> are not trained to do anything or the people who are expected to deal with a fire. But constables are not professional and they were like elected by their parish um, and have no central offices. Like there's no, there's no constable office. It's just a guy that you have. They're community funded. So they receive no money or oversight from the state. Even as they were taking people to state prisons, which we talked about in our Newgate episode or sort of beginning in like under Henry II. If anything violent happened, that's when you sort of get the militia or yeomanry to be called. And so, like, you kind of want to avoid that because, again, you're having that, like, state intervention that's, like, military-based. And the difference between, like, a watchman and a constable, watchman was a role that a citizen was supposed to take on. Like, you weren't necessarily perpetually there. But it became so onerous that and costly time-wise that nearly everyone who, would, who could would pay someone else to take over their duty. And I saw ens- estimates in the 1600s, it's like, 40% of all watchman duties were being paid for someone else. Like you would find someone who desperately needed the money. You're like, you're going to take my watchman shift. So only the poorest and most infirm people would actually end up serving as watchmen because it's like you're taking this really dangerous job on for like no pay. <laughs> and like, oh, it's just like this community duty. So once they're as like the roles stratify, people just get paid to do it. So they're not particularly very useful. And it's, it's a really like reviled position because poor people and infirm people end up taking it. I'm just thinking about, about that. <laughs> the constables and the great fire. Did they do the hue and cry? Just follow the fire and yell. <laughs> it's like they, I think they they started. I read about the great fire and it was like they they like they make the call to like basically during the great fire they destroy the buildings surrounding the fire. But it's it's like they don't want to do that. The people who have the buildings are like, don't destroy my house. And it's like that's how you deal with a fire before there's like a water brigade. Yeah. you have to just. Dis- this surrounding area and it's just like not dealt with but again like the, i don't think if a constable just came up to me and was like destroy your house and i don't know how fire works i think i, I would also be suspect of that 
Yeah, I'd be like, um, no, thank you. <laughs> right. um, on the opposite end of like respect for these like positions before Bow Street Runners, there was the role of the Justice of the Peace, which was also taken voluntarily like a constable, but it was attached to much more renowned and gradually gained more power as the constables lost renown. And I think we can sort of see this as like the split between like apprehension and like uh, it's sort of like the law and order. Like this is like mm-hmm. the McCoy of the the distinction <laughs> right this is the sam waterston he's gradually gaining more power we see this in the wiggerly trilogy like the role of justice of the peace these are the magistrates and we can sort of think of them as adjudicating both civil and criminal cases and this is the role that eventually will become more like judges and lawyers in the like the local level mm-hmm. um while initially judges like with actual like legal training were at higher courts and magistrates were sort of just citizens this eventually becomes like the lower county courts Another marker of like constables and watchmen is that they generally dealt with things that happened like right in front of their face. Like I grab a watchman and say like something, someone's stolen something from me or they see someone like wandering around at night, but they don't really have the skill set to investigate crime or the time. Like it's not an unpaid position that's like not well-funded. Like you, you have a life to lead. <laughs> right. So, but if a crime happens to you and there's not people immediately around, like what does a private citizen do? They could do the hue and cry. They could pursue them individually. Or they could hire a thief taker. So thief takers, as their name suggests, worked mostly in the realm of property crime because they were paid on the speculative value of the returned goods. Like the idea is that like my like purse of coins has been stolen. You'll get 10% out of that bag if you return it to me. Or like my jewels have been stolen. I will Because I can afford these jewels, I can also afford to pay you 10% of those values when you come back. This private system was rife with corruption um, because thief takers would work with thieves to steal goods and then split the rewards. And this is just like a widely written about sort of necessary evils. Like, like how do you have thief takers without corruption? Like we can't envision a system where that would happen. Why aren't there more so, romances with thief takers? Because this just sounds like a great romance to me. <laughs> I, they're so, and they work like parallel to highwaymen. Yeah. Like they're either taking the highwaymen or they are the highwaymen. It's much more romantic. And I think this is also like Bow Street Runners don't appear in literature nearly as much as thief takers, like an actual like contemporaneous literature. People right. are right, they're interested in thief takers much more. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like the possibilities of like, yeah, you could have corrupt ones. You could have ones actually trying to do their job. <laughs> right. As a generally reviled group, mistrusted by the public, they have this like proximity to criminality. Mm-hmm. Um, but Henry Fielding, novelist and magistrate, so he's writing novels. He most famously writes Tom Jones, which is about sort of a reprobate who's like going through, devolving in his life. He's going through on adventures and is, oh, he's kind of a rake, but kind of a buffoon at the same time. Um, he's kind of like a, he's kind of like Barry Lyndon. Um, <laughs> a, a great Albert Finney movie directed by Tony Richardson. Was, I don't know if it, the movie is not great. It, Albert Finney is just cute in it. <laughs> but Henry Fielding, he's a novelist and he's a magistrate. So he has like some legal training. He's called to the bar. He thought thief takers were noble. He was like, the reason that thief takers have to work this way is because they're not supported enough. He wanted a system of private prosecution and investigation to continue to work. So he founds the Bow Street Writers based on this interest in thief takers. He's called to the bar in 1740 and became magistrate of Westminster in 1748. So he's, he's sort of on the come up in his like legal career. There's a crime wave this year after the ending of the War of Austrian Succession. And this is a big theme in sort of the history of arc of Bow Street Runners and also just London in general. When men have jobs, like being soldiers, crime goes down. When they lose income, they steal things. Incredible, this happens like nine times in the 18th century. And most everyone is still blaming like morality. They're like, 
the men don't have morals. They need to go to church more. And it's like, get them jobs. But this happens all the time. Like they know when a war is over that crime is going to go up in London. So I have this quote that one of you could read from the sort of history of the Bow Street Runners by J.M. Beatty um, called The First English Detectives. And it's sort of, I think it captures sort of this, the relationship between London and the need for the Bow Street Runners that Fielding saw. So I don't know which one of you wants to read it. <laughs> I think Charles can. Oh, Okay. For in the winter of 1749 to 50, with reports increasing of violence in the streets of London, Fielding had taken what was to turn out to be an important initiative by organizing a group of men to devote themselves to seeking out and apprehending serious offenders and bringing them to Bow Street for examination and commitment to trial. The need for such a body, as he saw it, sprang from the reluctance of victims to undertake prosecutions and the difficulties they faced if they chose to do so particularly the difficulties of apprehending members of gangs who were frequently armed and prepared to use violence to rescue any of their associates in danger of being taken. Victims got little help, Fielding confirmed, from the existing police forces. The impunity with which London robbers acted and the indifference they showed to the consequences of their actions exposed the serious weakness and incapacity of the civil authorities. A more vigorous response was required. Indeed, the kind of response that Fielding was organizing at Bow Street, the success of which would depend on public support of men willing to undertake the dangerous task of finding and apprehending violent offenders. Yeah, so Fielding sees this system as like a victim-forward system, is that victims can't go to constables, they can't go to watchmen, and then thief-takers take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. um, but also, this, is, this came up in the Newgate research that I did. Victims also, at least some of them, were apprehensive about pursuing prosecution because of the extreme violence that was meted out by the state with like the mm -hmm. level of death penalty that that's like an anxiety mm -hmm. that's also parallel here yeah so i think that's sort of alighted a little bit in fielding's understanding like fielding can't understand like why you wouldn't want to prosecute someone who's stolen something from you right it's like well they might maybe i don't want them to go to death row <laughs> right right <laughs> that seems to be a, a parallel theme but he like wants he wants this he wants to advocate for victims of robberies and i guess this is a big theme throughout both street runners they do investigate non-property crimes, but because they're replacing thief takers, like then that's Fielding's goal. That is always sort of their core mission, at least in London, especially. Mm -hmm. And we talk about this when we talk about their sort of jurisdiction and how it expands later. But anytime that they're investigating something that's not a property crime, they're doing something atypical. So Henry and Henry's really focused on the investigation. He views this as a responsive police force. And that's important. My little quip about France earlier. England is very hesitant as a collective to have a patrol-like police force. They view that as a military police. They view it as, they don't have the word, they don't have fascism yet, but they mm -hmm. view it as like totalitarian. They view it as something that the monarchy does. And like they, they distinguish between their monarchy and Fra France's monarchy because of the Magna Carta. They're like, we, we don't do that here. France has this totalitarian police force which is true france does have a very strict police force much earlier than england but they're they're anxious about having police officers patrol and surveil and so henry's solution to that is to have this like investigation he's like only after something has happened will these police sort of follow the criminals that doesn't really work like <laughs> that's not how like policing works you can't have one half and not the other and that's what happens basically when henry leaves the bow street runners he founded the Bow Street Runners. He already suffered from poor health, and he would eventually immigrate to Portugal for the weather and die there. So his half-brother and secretary, John Fielding, would take over and then develop the runners. And these are much more 
or these are his sort of John Fielding's runners become more notorious and they're much more like the institution that we see in the novels. So initially we see the Bow Street runners develop so they can investigate major property crimes. But during John Fielding's tenure, the Seven Years' War broke out. So crime goes down. All these men are off fighting in the war. And so they're not around as much. If they're any sort of professional age soldier, they, they go off to the war. So this is when we start seeing the equivalent of like broken windows policing. So it's investigations into minor crimes, um, supposedly to prevent bigger bigger crimes, um, and also to justify the budget of the Bow Street Runners because they have this like annually renewing budget. So every year they have to ask for the same money. Mm -hmm. Also, we know like broken windows policing has all these problems. It's like it, it's crimeogenic rather than uh, crime preventative. And then John Fielding was also responsible for acute record keeping by Bow Street because this was one of his jobs under Henry. He sort of worked as a secretary. The detail of this is kind of wild to think about that they don't have a model for this and they're inventing it sort of on the spot. Like the, one of the things I read about, they would track the dispositions of transportation at the Old Bailey. So the court, they would go to the court and when people got a sentence transportation, they would mark down their name and how long they were supposed to be transported so that if they saw them, if like they were transported for seven years and they saw them five years later, they would apprehend them. And they had this like huge record of this so these people could be arrested. They tracked reports of stolen goods. They had like a book called like the watch book where it was like all watches reported missing with their inscriptions. So if like they found them in pawn shops, they could return them to the the owner. Watches? And then to supplement the, yeah. <laughs> is, <laughs> guess, like, is that what everybody steals? I think it's frequently stolen. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and also like easy to identify because I guess they're frequently like inscribed. Oh, okay. Um, opposed to like coins. And then if you, uh, John Fielding sort of, he realizes that in order to have successful Bow Street Runners and expand their reach, these men have to be paid well. And so he both asks for more money, but he also helps them get jobs in carceral institutions, which also helps feed information to the runners. So runners frequently worked in places like Newgate or the fleet or just any sort of prison so that they could like have access to criminals gossiping and get that information. And so again, like we're reaching closer and closer to this like surveillance thing. Like, yeah, like you're taking notes on reported crimes, but then you're also like looking at all the pawn shops, like who's going to the pawn shop. You're mm -hmm. going from investigation to surveillance sort of as John's in charge. Um, this is also when they start patrolling. Initially, it's at crossroads to deal with highwaymen. Like they were like, we're only going to be at the crossroads on the outside of the city near the gates, like where the highwaymen are. We're going to have like a, a patrol on horses. John Fielding's like always asking for more horses. He's like, we need more horses um, <laughs> to the Duke of Newcastle, who's like their patron. But then again, the patrolling aspect of policing moves the runners away from their original purpose of inv investigation. It makes them more like beat cops. Like they're first at the crossroads and then they're at the seedy neighborhoods and then they're sort of all over their jurisdiction. Also, it's like once they have, once these men don't have to work other jobs, they're kind of like, they become like plainclothes officers where they're just like out and about. And they're like, I don't, I'm not doing my other job. I'm just always a Bow Street runner. So some of the crimes that they were primarily concerned with are like so property crimes. So smuggling is a big one, body snatching, much more than murder. So this was like a thing where, uh, as again, during the enlightenment, they're always like running out of bodies. Like they, like scientific institutions. So there's like a huge market for grave robbing and like stealing bodies. Um, and so runners investigate that. Organized frauds, like counterfeiting or rigged gambling and then highway robbery. They did investigate some violent crimes, but murder investigations, generally the ones that I saw seemed more related to situations where there's a missing person and evidence needs to be recovered. If a body was found in London, a coroner would be called. Like that's the job of the coroner. And so, and also like the, it kind of, I think that also helps to think about the Bow Street Runners, like, purview of investigation. They're trying to find evidence. And, like, when you have the body, all most of the evidence in a murder 
uh, investigation is like on the body. And so mm-hmm. you don't really need to find more evidence. But then also Bow Street expands their reach. And so the further away they get from London, the more likely they seem to be investigating non-property crimes like arson and murder because those jurisdictions outside of London don't have coroners or as like robust other policing forces that are developing at the same time. Uh, and the Bow Street goes all over the place. Like they go to Scotland, they go to like Wales, like they they get taken everywhere because the highwaymen are sort of everywhere. And also they, as during these like 75 years of Bow Street Runners, they become more and more notorious as like investigation people compared to the other police forces and police forces in other jurisdictions outside of Westminster start being model, modeled on Bow Street, but they just, it has this like institutional knowledge of investigation and this reputation for being able to investigate. Also they, because they are not police officers, they're not sworn officers, they're basically private citizens. So they have this sort of like in-between status for like how they approach warrants. Some of them are like sworn magistrates or constables, and that's like a, a way to like improve your standing in the Bow Street Runners. But it makes it harder for them to serve warrants, but it makes them easier. It makes it easier for them to work outside their jurisdiction. And so it's like kind of positives and negatives of not being sworn officers of like a magistrate or a constable. So did they have a harder time getting cooperation because they didn't have like, like if they were going to need someone's assistance in like apprehending somebody, like would they, would they be able to be like, I'm a Bow Street runner. And then people are like, oh, gotcha. I'll just do what you say. Or did that not really matter? I think, it, I mean, I think it depended on like what the person, I guess like if the person's like a, an associate or not, like, but there are reports of them, like they're trying to open a door and they're like, we don't have a warrant. And they're like, come back with a warrant. You're not a constable. Mm-hmm. And so some of them are constables and magistrates and like that's like, the power to serve a warrant. Mm-hmm. John Fielding and Henry Fielding both like wrote all these things about like why private citizens didn't need warrants. And they're like arguing for the common law. They're like, this is private citizens can search and seize whatever they want. Like, that's not how anything works. Um, <laughs> So they're like, because you don't, because like private citizens, this is why like private investigators don't need warrants to go inside. It's like, yeah, but you're, you're breaking and entering. That's the, that's right. the warrant. Needing a warrant means that you're, you have permission to, if you go inside with the warrant, you're not breaking and entering. If you're a private citizen and you go inside without a warrant, you are breaking and entering. <laughs> so it's like, but they're sort of developing the law of like what, what they can do um, as these like citizen police officers but they're both always like especially john fielding is always arguing he's like citizens have this like duty to he, he sort of expands hue and cry like the duty and it's up in the air i get like uh, i think i mentioned in the group chat where it's like because they don't have a fourth amendment like the search and seizure law is a little mm-hmm. iffy at this point in in england the citizens sort of reject that and it's like at a certain point you just can't even if you're a bow street runner you don't want to like break down someone's door or like beat them up to get the evidence right. <laughs> Um, I guess they're natural sort of inclinations. So that's that's my history sort of overview. We can talk more about different things that we talk about in the books later, the specific romance novels. But I do have like a brief history of like Bow Street in literature because it doesn't originate with romance novels. The earliest I've seen a Bow Street hero in any genre is a book called Richmond or Scenes in a Life of a Bow Street Runner Drawn Up from His Private Memoranda which is an anonymously written novel that follows Richmond, the hero, becoming a runner, and then he goes on a series of escapades. This is good insight into sort of like what Bow Street was actually like. He's sort of working class, and he he sort of falls into Bow Street. He has like a connection at the, the office. He investigates property crimes, like rigged gambling and smuggling. He has sort of a ill-fated romance in it, and he, he had there's sort of tragedy in his life that dedicates him to investigation. 
the the sort of second half of the book when he's investigating the property crimes is sort of a precursor to like a Sherlock Holmes type where he he's getting the evidence and comes to a conclusion that only he could come to. And then as far as early romance novels go, both Georgette Heyer and Barbara Cartland mention Bow Street. But as far as I can tell from their books, obviously I haven't read all the books written by them or even reviewed all of them. I've only seen it in the context of a hero hiring a runner. Like a hero will reference hiring a runner to uh, investigate a property crime that happened at his estate or something. I didn't see any actual Bow Street Runner heroes. But an interesting discovery that I had when I was doing research for this episode is the author Jeffrey Farnell. I had never heard of him before, but he is like a generation older than Hire. And his Wikipedia page mentions that he and Hire as were founders of the Regency romance genre. Hire's page does not mention Farnell, so I don't know like if there's like beef or like why, what Hire's relationship was to him, or like if he's not mentioned in any of her biographies. But he seems to be an influence on her based on things I've seen again about him. He did write romances um, with central love stories, but he also had this character. Jasper Schrigg, who is a Bow Street runner. In the sort of, I think it's half a dozen novels that he wrote about Jasper Schrigg, Schrigg is like a Columbo-like figure. He's like a working class investigator who is looking into the murder of a nephew, likely by his uncle. The nephew turns out to not actually be dead and ends up marrying the uncle's ward, who the uncle had lecherous intentions towards. As you this do. This is literally the plot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you have a ward, you have lecherous intentions. Um, but this is literally the plot of two of the books. Like, the two books that I looked at in depth had the exact same plot. It's like, that's fun. Um, <laughs> but Shrig is there and he's got like his dialect and he's working class and people sort of think of him as an idiot. And they're like, oh, the Bow Street Runner is like hanging around. We can't get rid of him. And then he saves the day by revealing the uncle's sort of nefarious intentions. So he's not a romantic hero, but he is the hero in books that have a romance in them. Again, this is sort of pre like codification of genre fiction conventions. So he sort of splits the difference between murder mystery and romance. But that's sort of the early Bow Street Runners in, his, in literature. And then we get to our romance novels that we're going to talk about. So there are a few different plots that are sort of the bread and butter of Bow Street books. So there's the nobleman who we've noticed is almost always an earl. Like for whatever reason, that rank is bored and wants to be a Bow Street Runner. Dukes are too conspicuous. Um, right. <laughs> right. Dukes, and I guess like... Viscounts are maybe not fancy enough. I don't, I don't know. But they tend to be undercover, and they're like, they're using their maybe they feel like unsatisfied with the earldom, or they're maybe they're not yet an earl, and their older brother's the earl. They're undercover, and they're using their like sort of power and money to do their investigations. Sometimes a Bow Street runner will be an overenthusiastic investigator or side character, or like a villain. Like they'll be pursuing one of the, the either the hero or the heroine who's actually innocent. I think from what I can tell, heroines are more likely to be accused of a crime and the Bow Street Runner is investigating her and either he is the hero and this is like the precipitation of their romance or the investigation creates drama for the hero. Like he mistrusts the heroine because she's being investigated probably for the murder of her first husband or something. So those that's sort of overview of Bow Street. Any outstanding questions from my history or you just want to talk about some romance novels? <laughs> Uh, we can go to the romance novels, because I think as we talk about them, we can right. bring up like, yeah. hey, this is kind of a thing that comes up a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah. So I think Charles is going to start us with a sort of category romance about that has a Bow Street Runner character. Yeah, so I read Miss Billings Treads the Boards by Carla Kelly. 
So Henry, the Marquis of Grayson, doesn't like himself anymore. After returning from the war, he's lost interest in everything, and he has this come-to-Jesus moment where he realizes that he isn't important to anyone. His laziness has kept affection at a distance, and his idle, aristocratic life feels increasingly meaningless to him. So Lord Grayson's solicitor and friend remarks on the drastic changes he's noticed in the man, calling him lazy to his face. The solicitor, upon learning that Henry will be visiting a friend in the country, gives him a task. Find his other client, Catherine Billings, and give her good news. So Miss Billings, whose art collector father has just died, is on her way to a new governess position. She mistakenly believes that a sketch her father left her is fraudulent, but according to the solicitor, it's real and could be enough for her to keep her from having to work at all. So Henry agrees to do this. On his way home to pack, Henry sees his nephew and heir, Algernon, and he asks Algernon what he likes about him. Algernon is a vain and kind of foppish man, and he answers in earnest. He likes Henry's money. This is the final straw for Henry, so he cuts off Algernon from funds, and then when he returns home to pack, fires the valet that he has that kind of coddles him as though he's a child. He's like, I've just had enough of this. So meanwhile, Kate Billings is on her way to her new governess position, and she finds out that the man of that household she's to work for is a lecher. She grows increasingly nervous, enough not to notice that she got off the coach at the wrong stop. <laughs> She's picked up by a handsome man named Gerald Broussard. Uh, Gerald thinks that Kate is the actress he's sent to pick up for his employer, the head of a troupe of actors, and Kate simultaneously thinks that Gerald works for the household she's to govern us at, so it's like mistaken identity. When they realize their error, it's like too late for a neat resolution. She doesn't want to be preyed upon at the household she was hired at. And the acting troupe is short one actress who was supposed to play the part of Lusty Widow. So Kate agrees to fill in. So let's not forget about Henry. On his way to the country, Henry is accosted by a nervous highwayman who points a gun at him. So Henry tries to talk him down, but the highwayman panics and accidentally shoots him, like scraping the side of his head. So as the highwayman rides away, Henry recognizes the man as his former valet. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So his nephew, Algernon, and the valet were working together to scare Henry so that Algernon could come to his rescue last minute and redeem himself in both Henry's eyes and pockets. So it's just like a brilliant plan. Of course. (laughs) So then a wounded Henry encounters the acting trope and Kate helps nurse him back to health. Henry is like immediately smitten with Kate. And while he reveals to her that he's a Marquis, he decides to pretend that he's actually in mortal danger and that he has to remain in hiding. And he does this because he wants to spend more time with Kate in order to get her to fall in love with him as he has with her. So he's like, I'm just going to be like, oh, these bad guys are still trying to get me. Oh, I'm so scared. I'm going to pretend to be an actor. (laughs) As the acting troupe makes their way to a new town with both Henry and Kate in tow, they discover that everyone is talking about the missing Marquis whose bloodstained coat has been found. So at the inn the troop is lodging at, they discover a Bow Street runner on their tail, looking for the wounded Marquis. The runner, a neatly dressed man named Will Muggeridge, confronts Henry and Kate at the inn, and Henry lies to him, telling him that he's just a regular guy and that Kate is his wife. Henry is in no danger, but he uses the Bow Street pursuit to further inveigle Kate into his life, pretending that she is shielding him from his murderous relatives who have hired a runner in pursuit. Will, the runner, does not give up. 
He shadows the acting troupe through their lengthy preparations at a new venue. And he's the only one who clocks Henry for who he truly is. He, like, obviously knows that Henry's lying and is always telling him, he's like, I know you're lying to me. I'm just waiting for you to slip up. But he's, like, very patient and amenable. And he's just, like, content to just hang around until Henry gives himself away. So... Like Kate and Henry, Will also gets enmeshed with the acting troupe. He falls in love with one of the daughters of the troupe's leader. So Kate and Henry have a ways to go to their HEA at this point, uh, as they haven't really dealt with Henry's lies yet. But the resolution of the Bow Street storyline is that Will ends up deciding to leave Bow Street to pursue a career with his lady love in acting. And he reveals to Henry that he was hired by his guilt-ridden former valet, who wanted someone to find Henry and make sure that he was okay. So this was really quite funny and cute. I really liked it. (laughs) But yeah, I guess kind of the first thing is like, what is the, is, is it a big step down from Bow Street Runner to actor? I think so. Like, I think Bow Street Runners have this like proximity to criminality and like, I would sometimes they were like uh, prosecuted for like corruption. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. like the fielding's, made a perfect i mean that's also true of police today um that sometimes they're corrupt but i think they were respected more because they were like got the job done and also had this like pretty they had like a an institutional like the fieldings or like whoever was the leader at the time wouldn't tolerate corruption mm-hmm. uh, so i think probably as far as like public respect goes they would be respected less as an actor that's sort of my, my instinct gotcha he did um, it all for love <laughs> And so Will was hired by the former valet, which I thought was really interesting um, because I guess the the valet got like a, I don't know what the Regency term was for it, but he got like a, he got a severance package (laughs) and he he used that to like hire, uh, but he was like felt so guilty he used that to hire Henry. Um, I was going to ask before you kind of got into it, like their jurisdictions, but you did mention before that they could go quite far um but i guess here for this book he there wouldn't be a bow street runner involved if they if henry was a body right if he was a body if he was a missing person that's the thing it's like you think of them they're inspired to look for evidence Mm -hmm. so they find a body like which happens in some of the books that we read Mm -hmm. um it's like you would just you would call the coroner and you it's like the bow street runner can't really do anything it maybe if they were like we need to find we know who killed them and we need to find that person a bow street runner might do it Mm -hmm. but it's like we Find a body. The evidence of the crime is on the body. You don't need to find more evidence. Mm-hmm. And like, especially when you don't have forensics. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, too, what was really interesting is that, like, Will the runner is just like, I don't know how long that they were setting up the preparations for this play and this new theater, but it was definitely weeks. So he's just like hanging around there the whole time. And so I'm like, I wonder what that compensation was like. Yeah, they have, they were, it was like they had a, like a, a, so the 600 pounds from the Duke of Newcastle, he was like the, the state figure who would give the money, at least for the first, um, like I think like dozen years or something, and they would have to apply for it every year, and then eventually it goes to Parliament. And with the home, when the Home Office is founded, it sort of goes under the Home Office, and the Home Office like, eventually like subsumes the Bow Street Runners with the Met Police. But it's like the $600, or 600 pounds, they get at the beginning of the year, and whoever's is in charge the fielding or whoever follows them. So the two fieldings are the first person in charge and then it follows with different different roles. They're in charge of like doling out the 600 pounds for like these investigations. And then it's supplemented by if you get hired independently, 
and you could do it like speculatively like it would be like you have like your expenses but you're doing this with the, the speculation of the return so like the valet probably presumably the valet could be like if you find the marquis you will get more money because you'll find the marquis mm-hmm. um and that and it's like they were encouraged to like if if you could afford you would pay the Bow Street Runner and also I think you maybe like got better service if you were <laughs> paying the Bow Street Runners but they did they would investigate crimes without without people paying like large fees because that was like the whole point is that it was supposed to serve people who couldn't afford thief takers or th- couldn't athor- afford to be taken advantage by thief takers mm-hmm. but yeah, I, the idea of like a 600 pound budget I, I've never been in charge of a company's budget. But like starting with six hundred pounds at the beginning of the year and having to make it last for a year, which that like, seems so small. You like... don't know like what the property crimes are going to happen in December are, but uh, <laughs> I guess that's just how you how I guess that's how businesses work. Um, I feel now. like that's like what a small gentry family would live on. It was <laughs> right. like a six hundred pounds. I know there weren't that many runners though. Like, yeah, they started with six. It was like yeah. sort of notoriously six, and then it, I think it goes up to a few dozen by the end. It's like. 30s or 40s number yeah. of runners and i think probably their budget goes up over time but i, I saw the 600 number reported i think they could ask for more money for it because also there's 600 pounds is distinct from the magistrate's budget right um and so it's like sometimes fielding would supplement his with his own money for this and like neither henry fielding nor john fielding had children and they just like lived at the Bow Street office and the bar across the street. Like it's like you could find them there all the time. Like they had very few, very little family lives. I think Henry Fielding was married, but I don't think John Fielding was. And they just stayed around and like this was like their whole life. I think different magistrates probably had different approaches eventually to that. Well, I I liked Will. <laughs> I'm glad that he got this he wasn't is, the main character, but this sounds really cute. I'd like to read Carla Kelly. This this also sounds like a higher or Cartland sort of way the Bow Street Runner would appear is sort of like as a side character who's maybe moving the plot along rather than the romantic hero. Though he does have a love interest, which is Yeah, sweet. yeah. That was that part was really cute. He was kind of the smartest one. <laughs> but he was also <laughs> right. like completely unbothered. He was just like, I know you're lying to me. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> because like what can you as, do? As far as Bow Street tasks go, like babysitting a Marquis who's in a play is like a <laughs> A less dangerous one. So, I, like, I don't know if I'd be, like, super gung-ho to, like, get off that task. Like, I'd be like, I, I can hang out here for a few He weeks. was having a great time. They were short an actor, and they had to pull him in, too, at one part. They were always short an actor. They were, like, <laughs> pulling people in. But, yeah, I guess we can move on to our next book. Yeah, it's this about the home office, which Emma mentioned Poster Street eventually kind of subsumes into. So this is A Seditious Affair by K.J. Charles. So Dominic Frey is the one who works for the home office, and he meets Silas Mason every Wednesday night for an affair. Silas Mason is a radical bookseller and pamphleteer who writes under the pseudonym Jack Cade. Frey has been hunting down Jack Cade, although he doesn't know it's Silas. They don't even know each other's names, though. Like, they've been meeting for over a year. Silas thinks of Dominic as the Tory, and Dominic thinks of him as the brute. This story works really well because... I have this thing where I think of it as like the domino of correct opinions where it's like I've been reading some books recently where you have these like very highly evolved like leftist seeming characters and they all have like the right uh-huh. opinions but that's not like there's not much conflict there yeah <laughs> but I think KJ Charles does this really well it actually reminded me a lot of 
on what Chelsea mentioned with Ronnie Cartland, the Glamour Boys. Uh-huh. So you have these like gay men who are like Tories. Yes. Um. So that's I feel like that's kind of KJ Charles's whole thing, where mm-hmm. she will have like her kind of radical character and then her like more conservative character, and then they clash ideologically. So I don't really have much of a plot summary. I just have like a conversation I pulled out. Did I mention Dominic is an aristocrat? He's an aristocrat. That's important to know. (laughs) Um, Dominic snorted. He did not like the Spencean philosophy, a chatter of rights and equalities mouthed by gutter revolutionaries. They intended to steal land from its rightful owners and share share it out among what they called the people. Dominic did not share their idealistic views of mankind and had a fair idea of what would happen to their utopia of property in common after a couple of years. I do want to mention Dominic does have some principles. He notes others at the home office. They draw a paycheck, but they don't really do anything to earn it. They take credit for the work of those beneath them. So I don't know, Emma, if you can like shed some light, if people just kind of like, who is working at the home office? So the, the home office is founded in 1782, pretty much as a direct response to the Gordon riots, which we talked about in the Newgate episode. That was where the, it was like anti-Catholic riots. They end up burning down Newgate. And they're like, we need something more. Like as much as we don't like France and we don't like their military police, we need something that is like organized in central London. So they found the home office. And so at the same time they found the home office, they found the foreign office. And so it's like Department of the Interior. You can think of like FBI, CIA. Um, <laughs> right. And the home office sort of is like the Department of State and they are, they're like more noble than Bow Street Runners. And they basically start taking over jobs from different like disparate police forces as London is becoming like a metropolitan. So the year that this book is set, there would still be Bow Street Runners, but home offices are, the home office is taking on more policing responsibility. And they eventually are, end up being the department that the Met Police are under when that happens in 1829. And it's like Bow Street is like this location, right? Like in Covent Garden. And it's like they've taken their their sort of magisterial, like location-specific police force and changed it into this like nationwide thing. And it's like ultimately the home office is more appropriate for that than Bow Street, which it's, it's in this, it, it is appropriate in London because Westminster, like where it is in Covent Garden, is like at the the split between all these different jurisdictions apparently Mm -hmm. so it is like suited for this like multi-jurisdiction force but as the home office becomes more powerful and like respected and like has sort of like the secret service aspect of it that's when they take over bow street yes thank you um (laughs) home office we'll talk about more it's not just this book so I was mentioning that there was a scene where dominic he ensures that this lower level employee gets the proper credit for the work that's done. And then just one other thing I thought was interesting, or that's kind of interesting about male male romance in general, is this kind of like inherent contradiction for a character like Dominic to uphold the letter of the law while technically like breaking anti-sodomy laws. Dominic challenges Silas on this early, or no, Silas challenges Dominic about this early on. So Silas repeats some gossip that he's heard that the Duke of Cumberland has cut his valet's throat and dominic says that's slander silas ups the stakes and says everyone knows it and apparently he had fathered a child on his own sister so this is now the conversation well he didn't 
Dominic snapped. Either. That's a gross libel put about by muckrakers and rabble rousers. Silas is responding. Let's call it an analogy then, and just imagine Cumberland cut his valet's throat. You think he'd hang for it? Dominic sat back. Perhaps not, he admitted. No. So there's not one lot for all in the first place. Are you going to prosecute me for sodomy? Turn King's evidence? Dominic responds. No. So there are laws you don't think will be enforced, and laws you don't think should be enforced. So I think this whole book is just... K.J. Charles is just very good, like I mentioned before, with like contrasting ideologies. And it's not like, I don't think Dominic, by the end of the book, is like completely turned around and is like pro-radical and like pamphleteer, but they do make their relationship work. I actually don't remember how this book ends. <laughs> it's been a while <laughs> since I reread it, but I do endorse, endorse reading it. I, I guess my one question, other question would be, if the home office was in charge of like putting down revolution yeah like homegrown insurgency yeah because that's what the gordon riots are seen next they the gordon riots are like anti i think they're i think they're actually like anti anti anti-catholic because i think they're lord gordon was like pro-catholic it's messy politically the gordon riots but Mm -hmm. because they they're very like anti-establishment and they're so they that's what they burn like the bank of england and they burn newgate and the fleet and so they're it's that sort of like homegrown terrorism like they don't have that word yet, but is definitely like con- the concern of the Home Office and like spurs the the interest. Which again, as you think about like England is like we don't want to have police patrolling, but then they're the level of like censorship and like interest in sort of radicalism and like controlling radicalism during the Regency period and early Victorian period is so it's like you're you're totalitarian. It's okay. Like you don't, why are you pretending like you're not? Right. This comes right. up. A lot in like the Bow Street and the the bar that they have and like sort of the it becomes this like it's like a police pub right where like people are right. hanging out and like mm-hmm. sp- spreading this information and it's like this is the nature of policing is that like once if you have police they're surveilling they're patrolling that's they're like lying to themselves it seems about like the the level of control that they they think they're having and people are adv- people are advocating for it even as Parliament is saying like we don't want to. We don't want to do this. We don't want another Bastille. That's the thing that they're always they're like we because the French Revolution they see as like a direct. It's like not, a threat it's to it's them. A, yeah, it, the the French Revolution. It's obviously there are lots of factors that cause the French Revolution, but the level of policing that is happening in Paris leading up to the French Revolution is part of it. Like this level of information that's being shared and like control and a surveillance. And so England's like we don't want to have a French Revolution, so we have to take all these things to to avoid that. That well, but it's like yeah the. The move of modernity is towards policing, is that we, we mm-hmm. as we have cities, um, we move towards more policing. If I'm remembering correctly, Silas, something happens in the book where, like, Silas uh, has already been, like, convicted of sedition before. And there was something where he was, it was understood that if it happened again, he would be transported. I think that's right. Because at the end of the book, the whole plot is trying to make sure Silas doesn't get transported. Ugh, so, so horrifying to like have that be dangled as like a a punishment in front of you. So the next book I have is Sometimes a Rogue by Mary Jo Putney. Sarah Clark Townsend is the twin sister of Mariah, the Duchess of Ashton. Mariah is heavily pregnant and she and Sarah decide to visit the church while Sarah is in town. So when they're leaving, Mariah goes into labor and they return to the church, sending the groom away to fetch a doctor. 
While they're alone, they hear men arrive at the church, loudly and unceremoniously proclaiming that they've arrived to kidnap the pregnant duchess. So Sarah hides her sister and pretends to be her, angrily telling her kidnappers that she's already given birth and that they got their facts wrong. The kidnappers end up taking Sarah. When Mariah's husband, the Duke, finds out about the kidnapping, he asks his friend Rob Carmichael, who is not only a Bow Street runner, but has conveniently just arrived for a visit, to find Sarah. Rob tracks them all the way to Ireland, and he's able to spring Sarah from the clutches of her kidnappers and bring her back to England. So Sarah is kidnapped by members of Free Asia, which is Irish for Ireland. This is a fictional organization that Mary Jo Putney created, and she describes them as a radical group. Their goals are similar to the Society of United Irishmen, who you might remember from our Stormfire episode, a real group that worked for a free Ireland unencumbered by the British. Society of United Irishmen dissolved in the early 1800s, so several years before this book is set. So this fake radical group's members are portrayed as bumblers, they kidnap the wrong person, loudly proclaim their plans, and are generally very inept. What's interesting to me is that this group that is so radical and awful has only gone so far as to kidnap a woman. They later plan on killing Sarah for making a fool of them, but this is like, uh, I guess, kind of standard for violent resistance. And while she's kidnapped, Sarah is treated not great, but she's also not abused the same way that Catherine was in Stormfire. So anyways, Rob, the Bow Street runner, is the younger son of an aristocrat and is part Irish. Because he speaks Irish from spending so much time there, he's able to pretend he's a local in order to move under the radar while rescuing Sarah. There are moments that talk about Irish oppression under British rule, but it's kind of vague, and there are so many villagers that are willing to work against this radical group because they are the, quote, bad guys in a way that felt very false to me. Because the bad guys to them would be the British and not this other group that has kidnapped an aristocrat that they probably don't care about. Anyways, when he arrives to England with Sarah in tow, Rob learns that his brother has died and that he's the new Earl. Because of this, the Bow Street running is all in the early pages of rescuing Sarah, and the Duke mentions to Sarah later that for this sort of work, Rob would be compensated in a daily fee plus expenses incurred. Rob does talk about how shoddy his old living quarters were, so he was ostensibly not making a lot of money on Bow Street. And his former position is a source of ire for his grandmother, who does not see it as respectable. So there's this moment in the book after Rob inherits and his estate is in shambles due to mismanagement. Part of that is because of the neglect from his father and brother, but his steward is also embezzling money. When confronted by Rob and Sarah, the steward begs for clemency, saying that he has a wife and kids. Rob agrees to this, but not before saying, These are not small crimes, Buckley. I spent years putting lesser criminals in jail. Why should I release a man who has damaged everyone at Kellington? Yeah, I did not like this book. I actually really hate it. Um, <laughs> if you can't tell by the summary. There's a lot to think about, about like, we're going to talk a little bit more about like Irish people as like, cop characters in historical romance. I think this one is like even more fraught because Putney has these like really weird politics where like she like props up society of united irishmen as like these respectable radicals because they were non-violent but by the year that this uh, was set like 1812 i believe the society of united irishmen had already been disbanded and the british definitely didn't see them as non-violent at any point after the um 
Irish Rebellion of 1798. So it, I'm just kind of like, what history was she trying to reference? And I, it just, it just, there's this like this weird respectability about like the right way to rebel against oppression, which like the mm. oppression is like, ah, the British are really mean to us, <laughs> and, and, which is kind right. of like downplaying the inherent violence in it. So yeah, that really that annoyed me so much. Uh, but I guess kind of to get back to like actual Bow Street running. Um, so you want to talk about Irish Bow Street runners here? Yeah. So <laughs> the likelihood of a Bow Street runner being Irish seems far, like far removed from reality. Um, much more likely. So this, the whole thing with England and policing only applies to England. Their anxiety about police only applies to London and England. There are professional police forces in both Scotland and Ireland way earlier than the Met Police. So there's one in Ireland after the Irish Rebellion. So I think it's established in the eight, in 1800. Scotland a little bit um, later, I think. But yeah, there are professional police forces that are surveilling and patrolling, like doing the whole kit and caboodle in those countries much earlier than in London. So even when like people are not rebelling directly, like this is this is happening, they're much more likely to be surveilled. And again, like when we talk about Hello Stranger, it doesn't make any sense for an Irish person to want to work for Scotland Yard. That doesn't it doesn't track at all with like their their politics or even if they're they're seeking a free Ireland, they're not gonna find that in a, a London police force. Yeah, there's one point where Rob tells Sarah, if I was living in Ireland, if I was living here, I would join the Society of United Irishmen, which no, you weren't. They were disbanded. But also, <laughs> but also, like, what? You're a Bow Street runner. Like, why would? <laughs> what? Right. Yeah, and if he's like, if he is a, is he an Earl of like he an is Irish an Earl, county, yeah. or is he an Earl of a of a English county? English. Uh, so he's okay. he's he's an English Earl, his but he, yeah, his mother is Irish. But he also owns. Um, this is like. Another thing that really annoyed me in the book. So he owns um, he owns an estate called uh, Kilvara in Ireland. It's just mentioned. They never go there. But something that um, that happens is like the, his estate in England is being mismanaged. And then he finds out his Irish estate is also being mismanaged. And he's like, oh, well, I might just have to sell it. But it's too bad. I won't be able to vet who I'm going to sell it to. And these tenants are going to suffer. And then Sarah, you know, who's like the... Sarah is like a very, um, the heroine of this book is a very, um, a hoyden stereotype with like no redeeming qualities. So, oh, <laughs> so, so she's just like immediately good at everything, but there's like right. nothing under it at all. Like, so she's, she's like immediately able to identify that the steward is stealing from Rob, like within three minutes by looking at the books while he's talking to Rob. Like, it's just, she's right. That's the type of character we've got here. But she has this, like, really brilliant idea that, like, here, I'm going to read the quote. Too many people for the available land, Sarah said thoughtfully. What about immigrations? Would any of the tenants be willing to move to the colonies for hopes in a better life? So her idea is that she's going to give a thousand pounds to the Irish tenants and just tell them to move to America. And then everyone's like, <laughs> great idea, Sarah. <laughs> Oh gosh. <laughs> Which is, ah, uh, mm, mm, mm. and I'm just like, all of you guys are paying lip service to like the idea that like, you understand the source of the the rebellion, like you or you understand the source of the resistance, uh, but you don't if you really think the problem is solved by them moving. <laughs> but okay, so yeah, I guess, uh, so yeah, for this book, not a lot of Bow Street running. I mean, I guess there's a big part, part of the 
him saving Sarah, which is ostensibly part of his Bow Street running duties. So they're the Bow Street running. But you've got two things. You've got uh, an Earl who's a Bow Street runner, although he was technically a Bow Street runner before he became an Earl. But he's still, like, aristocrat. Like, I think in this book he, like... He was using it to, like, he really hated his family. So he was just like, fuck you, family. I'm going to be on Bow Street. (laughs) Right. And then uh, then he's also, of course, uh, Irish, which is a thing that I guess we'll get into a little bit more in in Hello Stranger as well. Well, this is, like, your point. But I'm also going to connect it to Emma's thesis from the Newgate episode, where it's like, if you're going to talk about Newgate and historical romance, you're going to be basically talking about modern prison as well like kind of your your conception of prison will be mm-hmm. part of newgate so that's kind of you have this point here Charles, where you're talking about like we have this perception of like irish american cops and like stereotypes in movies and that maybe like you feel like that's kind of being like mary joe putney's kind of pulling some of that <laughs> onto her character or yeah. that feel yeah that's what i what i that's like how I am trying to rationalize this because, like, why else would you even bring up the like uh, yeah. the the oppression of the Irish people and then also like tie your main Irish character to uh, like someone who's like enforcing in some way or yeah. or who's more aligned like part with, of the oppression? Kind yeah. Of, yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, like, I, and I think that's I, I'm I'm just like picturing Mary Jo Putney like watching. Um, I know this was years before. Breaking Bad came out, but like I'm just picturing her watching like Mike and Breaking Bad, where they're all at the Irish pub, like when the right. corrupt cops and stuff. Like that's her being like Bow Street. That's <laughs> well, actually, no. This was written in 2012. Maybe she was right. Maybe she was watching The Departed. Like, oh, I literally thought of The Departed. I was like, this feels kind of like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like Newgate, it's like it's like if you're writing a police character in. Mm-hmm. 2003 2023 it's like this is this is true of all historical romance like whatever you're calling about whether it's police or anything like you're you're writing both about the period that you're setting it and writing it about it now like i think even if the most like historically accurate book you're also writing it in the year that you write it and i think this Mm -hmm. is true of like all period pieces historical romance movies the thing with newgate is that like newgate is a bad metaphor for modern prison and so it's it doesn't work and then it it doesn't it's like you're going to have all these historical inaccuracies. So I think it's actually it's in, it's easy to see that it's a metaphor for modern prison or that people like their politics about modern prison comes out more clearly. And I think similarly with Bow Street Runners, Bow Street Runners are not like historically are not good metaphors for modern day policing. And so if you read a Bow Street book or any sort of Met Police book, anything, it, I think the the stuff is more it's more metaphorical than it actually seems. Because I think this is true. Like, if you you talk about this with, like, sex mores, like, if you're writing a book now and you're looking back, like, it's also going to be about sex in the time that you write it. Mm -hmm. Um, But those, I think it it works both and a little bit more with sex, but with these, like, political entities, especially ones that are oppressive, it's like, I wish people would just sort of acknowledge that it's like, if your Bow Street Runner is investigating a murder or your Bow Street Runner is like is an earl or something it's like this is about cops now so just like say something interesting about it mm-hmm. or or what happens i think oh, with a lot of the books that we've read is that they are saying i guess interesting things about it but they're things that are more conservative than i think the the books the authors might have us want to believe or want us to believe right. or things that we don't agree with and it, it's like just just the nature of pulling calling on this part of history mm-hmm. um, 
All right. So we're going to jump to Hello, Stranger by Lisa Kleypas. This is another home office book, and it's also the latest one that we read, like, like the year it was set in. It was set in 1876. So Garrett Gibson is a female doctor. She's walking home one night, and a bunch of off-duty army men threaten her. She fights them off using her cane and then discovers that someone has, like, helped her during the fight, and we discover that Ethan Ransom has kind of been following her every Tuesday night. Garrett does the, like, I don't need help routine, and Ethan's like, dear God, yes, you do need help. (laughs) So this leads to a self-defense class, basically. Um, They really like each other, but Ethan is a spy, and so he doesn't want his spy work to put Garrett in danger. Obviously, Ethan isn't like a Bow Street runner. But a bit of his history that I thought was interesting is he starts off as like, kind of like a beat cop who voluntarily works in the slums and solve unsolvable, like unsolved cases at night for fun, I guess. (laughs) Um, So this is a quote. This is a quote from the book. And this is a cop talking to Garrett about Ethan. The cop's talking. He cracked a murder that had baffled the division's sergeant detective for years, cleared the name of a servant falsely accused of jewel theft, and recovered a stolen painting. Garrett responds, so he's worked outside of his rank, and the cop she's talking to is like, right. And then this is the cop talking again. But instead of charging him with misconduct, they promoted him from fourth class constable to inspector. And Garrett's like, five levels in the first year? And the cop's like, no, the first six months. But before they could promote him, the home office like recruits him. I thought this was kind of funny because I feel like that's not how it actually would have gone down. Like, they would have been like, let's promote this guy doing great work. They probably would be like, let's fire him. He's making us look bad. That's like <laughs> my my instinct. And then I think another important thing to bring up is kind of like the structure of the home office, or at least as Lisa Kleypas relates it, and kind of this rivalry between the home office and the Metropolitan Police. So this is from the book. There was a vicious rivalry between Jenkin, that's the home office boss, and Fred Felbrig, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. Jenkin and his eight secret servicemen had become direct competition for Felbrig and his team of a half a dozen plainclothes active officers. Jenkin treated Scotland Yard with open contempt, refusing to collaborate or share intelligence. He said publicly that London police were incompetent, a pack of fools. Instead of using them for extra manpower, Jenkin had sent for Royal Irish constables from Dublin. To add insult to injury, Jenkins' position at the Home Office wasn't even legal. He and the Secret Service Force had never been approved by Parliament. One could hardly blame Scotland Yard and Fred Felbrig for being livid. However, Jenkin acquired power as easily as breathing. His influence extended everywhere, even to distant foreign ports and consulates. He had created an international web of spies, agents, and informers, all answerable to none but him. So as I was reading this book, it really felt like like a, like a James Bond, like Mission Impossible type, like international spy feel. I know, Emma, you've read this book. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you felt the same it, it's way. Like a, it's Lisa Clay was trying to do like John le Carré novel. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, so the Metropolitan Police, as far as I understand it, is like under the home office. Like they're... They're kind of like under it, but I guess they're they're separate and apart and like their actual duties are different. And obviously the home office is like larger. So it makes sense that they have like these other teams. So I think maybe 
it's like the the parallels are are there where it's like there's a home office team that's working sort of on this like interesting cases and the metropolitan police are like more of these like beat cops who are um doing like the everyday grunt work and so they have this like resentment towards them but it is it, it's a fun it's like uh, as far as like mysteries go and like lisa claypas trying to do something interesting it is i think it she pulls it off she doesn't always but this one i think is solid i do not like the i've i've i pay i reread some scenes for this episode of this book i do not like the surgery scene it is, <laughs> it is which is I, funny because i actually really enjoyed it um <laughs> it was like harrowing the first time i read it i should have skipped it i don't i just something about it like got to me <laughs> But I like the scene, and this is, like, unrelated to anything we're talking about, but it feels like, you know that scene in, like, an action movie where the hero wakes up in the hospital at the end, and the friend is sitting there, and the guy wakes up, and he's like, how long was I out? And it's like, <laughs> doesn't even look up from reading, will be, like, four days. Anyway, this entire surgery scene feels like the behind-the-scenes to that, like, what Garrett has yeah. to do to keep yes. Ethan alive you could tell Clayfist did her homework. I really enjoyed it. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. I guess yeah. if I had to pick like a hero being shot, I would pick this over St. Vincent. Any day. <laughs> <laughs> she kept him alive, but at what cost? Right. <laughs> and I did want to add, uh, Clayfist does pull, like we, she's, she's pulling from history here. Um, there's like a conspiracy plot that's fictional, but and this is quoting from the author's note, there really was a secret and unauthorized team of agents supervised by Edward George Jenkinson. He ran clandestine operations from the home office, often competing with Scotland Yard. Jenkinson was dismissed in 1887 and his force was replaced by the official special Irish branch. So when I I was reading it, I'm like, this feels very fantastical, but apparently it's rooted in some, some history. Do we want to talk about the one you both quit? (laughs) I only have like one question from it where it's like, um, so Chelsea and I both tried to read this book, A Lady Never Surrenders by Sabrina Jeffries. Beth got way way further than me. (laughs) Yeah, Chelsea and at the prologue. I think I had to like the second chapter. I don't even know. But it's the fifth in a series. I don't even know. If I, okay. It's the fifth in a series. And <laughs> Celia's grandmother conditions her grandchildren's inheritance and all of them getting married in a year. So Celia is the youngest and she wants Bow Street runner Jackson Pinter to investigate three potential marriage suitors. It seems like he's done this before for her like older siblings. And Jackson is employed by one of the brothers, I think. So that's like the only question or talking point I have from this book is like... Do do they do background checks? Like that's what this is. <laughs> I didn't see anything like refer like as far as like just like private hiring. Also, it, it doesn't go against like Fielding's like conceit, which is like we're supposed to investigate after the crime has happened, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I mean, I guess like in your private time, you can do whatever you want because you're effectively not really a police officer. You could just investigate with your skill set. Yeah, I don't. This is this did not seem to be like a, a way that they made money that I saw in the nonfiction stuff that I read. Yeah, I thought it was, I don't know. It's not like the worst conceit I've ever read, but it was just like a little strange. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, thank God there are more Bow Street books, so I don't have to read this one. <laughs> it was. Yeah, this is an anti recommendation. Yeah, this is a not... I feel like this is the most anti recommendations we've had in a single episode, too. Because yeah. <laughs> well, this one. We were just like, we need Bow Street books. So it wasn't like we were operating from like a theme and then a plugging in books that we've already liked. So yeah. 
So we can't, I guess we talk about the book that inspired this episode, which is a book that we actually do like. Yes, yes. we should talk about that. Um, that we've all read that we all like. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So Jules is going to tell us about Lady Sophia's Lover by Lisa Kleypas, which is a, it's a good book and a good boastery book. So it's, it's both things at once. Hey, <laughs> good books. Um, so Sophia Sidney, the destitute orphan of a Viscount, arrives at the office of Sir Ross Cannon, the chief magistrate of Bow Street. Sophia asks for a job as his assistant, and Ross declines because she's a woman, offering her the position of a housekeeper instead, a position that she emphatically doesn't want. Ross never has the upper hand in this negotiation. Even though he ostensibly holds all the cards, he is immediately so smitten with Sophia that the good judgment that he's famous for flies out the window. The compromise is that Sophia will work as a housekeeper with some assistant duties on Bow Street. So Sophia has ulterior motives for gaining the position. Her younger brother participated in a highway robbery and was sentenced to time on a prison hulk. So originally created to reduce overcrowding in prisons, prison hulks were largely docked ships where people convicted of a crime would be imprisoned after a full day of hard labor. Sophia's brother, who was a teenager at the time of his conviction, died on the prison hulk after getting cholera. Believing that time on a prison hulk was an outsized punishment for her brother's crime, Sophia plans to get revenge on the man who passed the sentence, Sir Ross Cannon. Now that she's in his employ, she plans to find material to blackmail him with, as well as make him fall in love with her and then betray him. So it's common, I'm going to make you love me and then I'm going to wreck you. Sophia's Bow Street duties include listing the occupants of prisoner vans coming to and from Newgate, compiling reports of the Bow Street runners, and taking depositions from what Sir Ross Cannon calls the, quote, foul characters who parade daily through Bow Street. She also has to compile notes for The Hue and Cry, which Kleypas describes as a weekly publication of police news containing descriptions of offenders at large and the details of their crimes. As the chief magistrate of Bow Street, Sir Ross Cannon is in charge of all the Bow Street runners and is credited with the expansion of their powers, and this is a quote from the book. For decades, Bow Street Number 4 had served as a private residence, public office, and court. However, when Sir Ross Cannon had been appointed chief magistrate 10 years earlier, he had expanded his powers and jurisdictions until it had become necessary to purchase the adjacent building. Now Number 4 served primarily as Sir Ross's private home, while Number 3 contained offices, courtrooms, record rooms, and an underground strong room where prisoners were held and interrogated. And then here's another quote that I thought was interesting. Um, this is from uh, Sophia's point of view. There were rumors of corruption surrounding the runners and their activities, reports of illegal raids, brutality, and intimidation, not to mention acting outside their described jurisdictions. Everyone knew that Sir Ross and his, quote, people, as he termed them, were a law unto themselves. Once an already suspicious public was given solid proof of their misconduct, the paragon, known as Sir Ross Cannon, would be ruined beyond redemption. This is like the one book I feel like where we spend so much time with Bow Street Runners, whereas before they're just like, it's just a guy. <laughs> yeah. I think when I, like, we pl started planning this episode, I was like, I had read Lady, Lady Sophia's Lover, enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, people will have read this book because it's kind of also the first, I think it's published 2002 or 2003. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's the first romance novel that I've identified that has a hero as a Bow Street Runner. And I was like, oh, everyone who writes books after this must be like reading Kleypas and thinking that they could do it better. Nobody does it better. This is the best one that we're talking about. By far. <laughs> um, 
like by far both for Bow Street and for the novel like it's a really good romance and also like so much of the history is there like the hue and cry like that's the actual that is like a invention of the fieldings to like and that's how Bow Street becomes sort of like outside their like sort of small sector of London is that they they publish they sort of take advantage of the publishing abilities and we're like we're gonna report crimes and also like enlist sort of the community they were to take that community policing and publish things about it and like use gossip networks and whisper networks to prosecute these crimes the like ross's role in society that he sort of starts as a magistrate and then becomes the chief or chief magistrate for bow street and becomes more investigatory later in his career especially at this time post fieldings where it's like we need people who have this like law degree or law um, background to be a part of bow street so that we can stay on the right side of law, like the worry about corruption. So many of these things like are reflected in Bow Street. And I think Kleypas has interesting things to say in this novel about like redemption. Like what does it mean to police? What does it mean to prosecute? What does it mean to condemn people? Like I think I tagged this on my Goodreads as like a prison abolition romance, which is wild for a Lisa Kleypas novel <laughs> to like consider these questions. But she does and like kind of with a plum because of Sophia's interest in revenge against a system and ross i think's reaction to sophia's revelation that she wanted to commit revenge is also like very compassionate and understanding and he's like i might have i might have done these things that you want revenge on and i'm going to try and figure out if i did uh, he doesn't like react with like saying i never i would never do those things he's like no that's part of the job but i was part of the job that i can also feel guilt over yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And like something too, I was thinking about, so like when, because uh, Sophia drops her revenge scheme like fairly early uh, to, as she kind of like recategorizes, like she has, she's like the man that I've created who has done this thing, this harm to me does not match up with you. And so like, even if you did do it, like, and that's kind of the point, like when she's like confronting Ross, uh, she's like, even if you did do it, like, I can't be mad in this way anymore because I know who you are, which is really interesting. But, like, when you get to, uh, I think one of those, uh, when you get to, like, I think one of those quotes that I pulled out, um, I, I was thinking about this earlier when you were talking about thief takers because, like, like when in Sophia's point of view, like, early on in the book when she's planning on ruining Ross, she's like, people are already distrustful of Bow Street Runners. Like, people... Uh, think that they're a law under themselves they're like uh they're brutal they're they have this like intimidation tactics and that sounded a lot more like the thief takers we were talking about earlier like did the bow street runners have this same reputation yeah i mean i think it's like again like the thing where i was saying is like nothing happens immediately mm-hmm. like it's it's like if you're doing thief taking and you're taking any sort of like if you're doing that role it's like it's, there's going to be like suspicion in early days of it and then i think also at the end of the bow street runners like arc they're more mistrusted. It's like we have this need for the Metropolitan Police with like more oversight and more profe- like more professional police than the Bow Street Runners, which eventually become like the less professional police version when they're like they're more professional than the constables, but they're less professional than what the Metropolitan Police end up being. But I think also it's like kind of I mean the way that like people feel about police now, it's like there's institutional there's people who buy into the institutional power and like this mm-hmm. is something it's like the corruption is a necessary evil of a state power that protects me. And then there's people who it's like the level of corruption is unacceptable or something is inherent about the the nature of policing that makes me mistrust this behavior. So I, I think it's like they're they can be like both and. Yeah. 
And like, I guess another thing too is like, so Sir Ross is like in a, a much more, like we've talked a lot earlier about how like there are all these earls who are Bow Street runners who are kind of <laughs> yeah. like doing all this grunt work, right? Which is just like kind of stretches the limits of belief. Um, but Sir Ross is in a really interesting position that it seems like more of like a, seems like a much more natural trajectory. So he's, uh, he's gentry and his family is very wealthy and and so and he's not like a run-of-the-mill bow street runner right like he's the chief magistrate of bow street so that that kind of like uh ascension is it seems like it 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 seems like much more like linear than the other yeah i mean i think this is true also of like any any police work like any accurate depiction of police work is going to be a lot of like paperwork right Mm -hmm. like it's all that's which i don't think any of the other books seem as interested in mm-hmm. compared to it's like Ross Ross is going to be at his desk like looking through things like that's that's both that's just police work in general but also it, it does seem it, it makes more sense that he's like behind, he's in a behind the desk role and he, he, so he's effectively in the same position that the fieldings were like the chief magistrate mm-hmm. he's like taken over um those like origin roles do we have much else to say I did I mean I did read two two books that I can recommend, but I guess this is sort of like, I guess my like bow on the Bow Street Runners thing. So I reread, um, or I, I guess I finished, I didn't finish, uh, The Earl of Her Dreams um, by Anne Mallory and A Dangerous Seduction by Gillian Eaton. And these are two books that like, I would describe like neither of them as particularly historical for Bow Street. Like they're, both of them involve, well, actually the, the Earl of Her Dreams involves an Earl undercover for Bow Street. It plays like a clue mystery novel. It's like who committed the murder in what room with what weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very charming. And Bow Street is like this, is, there's so many things about it that are ahistorical in Bow Street. It almost becomes charming and like Bow Street is totally mythologized. And then in A Dangerous Seduction, I think there's there's some historical um, inaccuracies in it. But I think it, it talks it does say interesting things sort of about like the nature of like the power of surveillance because the hero is suspecting the heroine of killing her husband. And he sort of has to admit to himself that he's abusing his power by investigating her. It becomes very clear that she did not kill her husband pretty early. And that's sort of like one of his like moral quandaries that he has to reckon with is that he's taken on this like investigative power to the detriment of her because they, they were like childhood sweethearts and he wants to hurt her. So it's like a sort of a, discussion of like the abusive power of like having this like investigatory role and like surveillance role so i just those books both of those books i would recommend um not necessarily as historical bow street books but just cute romances but yeah i guess uh, any other outstanding questions about bow street (laughs) or 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 anything else to say about the novels (laughs) yeah no i think um i i think this is very interesting like especially in conjunction with newgate like i i think uh, if you talk about Bow Street and uh, Newgate in historical romance, like historical romance seems to lean even more conservative than people would initially think. Yeah, th- I think it's that's definitely true. And I think it just it comes up as this thing where it's like, it seems like there's like when they're trying to condemn either institution or like suspect or like sort of suggests like suspect things like oh like the Bow Street Runners are overextending their jurisdiction or Newgate is cruel it it seems like the genre tend, tends to rely on like, like that distance I think that happens for both sort of setting markers that distance creates like an, an excuse or a get out of jail free card for like modern 
like institutions. It's like, oh, it was worse back then. Or like Bow Street is closer to criminality than police are now. Newgate is a worse situation than prisons are now. And so like we've, it is invested in this like long arc of justice where it's like things, things must be better now. Um, and it's like things are different now. Think that doesn't mean that better or that these institutions are somehow like not worthy of critique just because things used to be maybe a little bit more messy. Um, it's like, I wouldn't even say like Bow Street is like worse than some police departments now. It just is different. It has different institutional rules. It has different institutional goals. But it doesn't mean that it, we, we can't critique things now. And I think the most interesting way to use Bow Street in a book would be to critique policing now or engage with notions of policing now because you're going to do that either way so you might as well like have a intention about it which i think is a success of lady sophia's lover like i think it it on its face it it deals with like what does it mean to punish someone and to like to forgive people like sophia has to go through the forgiveness of ross which makes for like a really good a really good romance Thank you so much for listening to Reformed Breaks. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformedbreaks. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at reformedbreaks. Please rate and review. It helps a lot. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.